science. And you're listening to Love and Science here on uh, BBC. Uh, no, <laughs> no, you're not on the BBC. <laughs> what am I saying? On BC, as old habits die hard, uh, on BCFM uh, radio. And we are delighted uh, to have your company, as always. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm joined uh, by Andrew and Hannah. Uh, and uh, Hannah's bit, you've, uh, Hannah Beswick, you've been with us for the last three weeks now. Yeah, three weeks. Oh, wait a minute. I've, I haven't got your mic. Say oh, something out. There we go. Now on mic. Yeah, three three in a row this time. Yeah, it's very yeah. very good to have you back. And, and Andrew, it's good Hello. to have you oh, with us. You've been off again. for yeah, two welcome. weeks. We've missed you. Yeah, I've, I've missed you guys. I've been enjoying listening to the uh, to the show. Of course, I um, have been making it into a podcast as well. Um, all our shows are available as a podcast still. On, and just uh, remind us how we can uh, get uh, them. You can go loveandscience.podbean.com. You can go back and listen to all the shows without all that pesky music getting in the way. <laughs> 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 I don't know what to say. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so if you if you do, just don't have time, you want to get to the heart of the matter, yeah. incredibly important bits of conversation like this. Yes, exactly. Then you I can, might edit this bit out of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and w- you, I mean, the last time we uh, heard from you on the show. You, in fact, we played an interview that you did because you did. tell us what that you were at a conference in Birmingham. I was at a conference in Birmingham. It was the International Women in Physics Conference, uh-huh. uh, hosted by the Institute of Physics. Yeah, and uh, I was there, and neither as a physicist nor a woman. Go along because the uh, at the Institute of Physics very kindly asked me to make their podcast for them, the Physics World Podcast. Yes, yes, and. Um, so I was making a podcast, uh, which has come out, I think, in September, about um, women in physics. And obviously that conference was important in that particular aspect. And, it, yeah, it was a fascinating uh, day. The, 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 the conference went on all week. I was just there for uh, one day of it and found someone happy to talk to me about Doctor Who. So. Well, I was going to say, of all the topics that were going on, yeah. the thing you picked was Doctor Who. I mean, yeah. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, but, of course, it was very relevant and very important because... Uh, uh, yeah. uh, that it's the first uh, female Doctor Who and all yes. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, we're, we're, ser- seriously, I mean, I, I know we're talking fiction here, and a lot yeah. of people might think it's trivial. But were people there saying, "Oh, yes, that is that is symbolic"? As far as uh, yeah, I think well. I think there's a certain aspect of it. Well, it's about time, was the um, which it is literally, yeah, yeah. and uh, and also metaphorically. And um, it was yeah, no, I. What I don't understand, and forgive me for for speaking out of Mm. turn here, but what I don't understand is how you can like Doctor Who and have a problem with a Doctor being a woman. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. You've you've not been paying attention. To to the whole premise. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There's some very core elements there that you're not agreeing with if you're against a female Doctor. It's like watching It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not going to talk about politics. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's. Uh, oh, have you had a eventful week, Hannah? Anything week? exciting? No, not necessarily. But I did go home and do some taxidermy with my dad. Did you? Yeah, oh, yes, that not, reminds not me. Not the coolest, I, normalest hobby, but it was quite. Well, fun, I have actually. to tell you, I've been watching some episodes of Bates Motel. 
Oh my goodness, I really like that show. Yes, That's and the taxidermy good. features very heavily in there. Oh my goodness, there. yeah, I just see, I just see where you go. With that. <laughs> 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 um, I'm not, I'm not like him. I'm not like Norman. Ah, uh, well, so, so you knows. say. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> sure Norman didn't know. Like the old big denials going on. <laughs> What's, right. What have you been taxidermifying or whatever? Um, the word it was is. a, it was a magpie. It was a juvenile though, so okay. he didn't. He was a little bit bold in spots because his adult feathers were still just coming through. Um, okay. Yeah, he t- it turned out he um he had a skull fracture. That was quite quite interesting to to be able to work out what actually killed him but um still quite morbid so mm. maybe maybe i'll stop talking about that now. <laughs> <laughs> well um uh, when you taxi i don't know what's the yeah. word is what do you call what do you stuff uh, stuff a magpie yeah but i guess that it? mount what do they what do you do it with would you do it with yeah um you can buy so um online you you can just go on like ebay or like a specialist store online and buy like the right body right shape yeah. Uh, so you just get this like almost like um, I can't remember some kind of some kind of foam guys. Yes. Um, shape right for the kind of specimen that you're looking at, and you also can buy the exact kind of eyes that you need. So you just search the kind of animal that you're stuffing, and you can buy the exact eye, the right size, and the right like color and iris and everything. And it's a kind of foam you spray into it. No, no, it's it's just a pre-made shape. So you oh. once you've just ah, the I'm with you. Sorry, I was you slow on the Place it into the yeah. body yeah. and yeah. sew gotcha. it up over it. And gotcha. It gives, it, gives it the right Gosh. shape. Oh, that's strange. Well, look, let's move on. Yes. That's uh, very, very interesting. No, interesting. Uh, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a, some kind of slight <laughs> put down. <laughs> uh, I'm just, uh, just saying, yeah, I've not, I've not actually come across somebody who does that. That's no. interesting. So, um, as as one always does, one one's mind quickly goes to Exo Moons. Yes, as always. As always. And uh, Andrew, this is definitely your territory. We apparently have had uh, some interesting information coming from an exomoon. In this case, a moon of uh, Saturn. Uh, no. uh, sorry, Jupiter. No. 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 Talk That's two stories. Sorry, sorry. Yes, the exomoon yeah. being outside of our own galaxy. Yes, yes. quite. So they're mixing up two stories. Yeah, You're absolutely that's, right. That's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, an exomoon is a moon which orbits a planet outside our solar system. So the Kepler Space Telescope has been looking for exomoons and exoplanets for um, some years now and has found something like just over 3,000 exoplanets. Yeah. And no exomoons. And that kind of stands to reason. It's easier to find a planet than it is to find a moon. Moons tend to be smaller, well, are smaller. Let's say they are. We've not found any that are bigger yet than the planet that they orbit. And um, so it's easier to find something bigger, clearly. Yeah. Um, The way that we find planets, uh, usually with Kepler Space Telescope, is to for the telescope to look at a star, a distant star. The light comes from that star, it gathers the star, the the light from that star. And if a planet is orbiting that star between us and that star, then that light will dip because there's this huge mass passing in front of it, blocking the light out. Uh If you wanted to find a moon, you would find that that light would dip slightly before or after consistently as it went past because there would be a smaller dip as this moon was going round it so if you can there would be two bodies yeah. going past the moon yeah two and dips. it would be different times yeah. as it did that yeah um we haven't seen that but now we have we have seen that uh, for a well it's a candidate for an exomoon at the moment it it's definitely not said that it is a moon it's the likelihood that they're saying is like if you flicked a coin 15 times yeah and it landed heads every time yeah 
this is as likely to be a moon as that is oh, to happen. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Yeah. Which, statistically, when you look at the whole universe, and then yeah. now, that's, that's it's possible. Likely, yeah. yeah, it's pretty that's likely. likely. Yeah. It's it can happen. But that's, that's how likely it is at the moment. So it's definitely not definitely one, but it is <laughs> there. Um, and it's very exciting. Um, I, well, I think it's very exciting because, well, I love our moon... And moons are just as wonderful as planets, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, of course, Titan, uh, which we'll come to probably in a bit, uh, is a moon of uh, Saturn, which um, I think, yes, confuse me, um, yes. which is um, which may well harbour life, and we've got some, some story on that later. Yes, yeah, but, we're going to talk about that, well, hence my confusion yes, quite. at the top of the um, show here. But um, it's, it's very exciting for me, but d- d- Dr Kipping... Um, of Columbia University in New York mm-hmm. has he says he's been looking for exomoons for most of his adult life uh, which I have as well but he's been using much better equipment than I have mm. and uh, he's he is one of the people who's who's found this in the Kepler data and uh, he says he's very excited about it um, it's he it, the way he puts it it's that statistically it's quite unquantifiable to say how likely it is and until we get the measurements from the hubble space telescope it's probably about 50 50 um a little bit more about the moon which is uh it orbits a star if it does it orbits a star four thousand light years away from earth and the moon is known as kepler 1625 b i i think ah one of those really catchy names yeah. again. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just looking at this story as well. It says that it's likely to be the size and mass of Neptune. Yeah. And Neptune is enormous. Yeah. It's a huge planet. Yeah. Well, the 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 planet, the star that it's uh, the planet that it orbits is um, something. Well, I, I can't remember, but it's considerably bigger than Earth. So it's uh, roughly the size of Jupiter with ten times the mass. Okay. Thank you, Welcome. Hannah. And um, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, and, uh, one of the things I wanted to point just the, the name is weird. It's yeah. rubbish. It's just one of those numbers. But I really like that because it's about the size of Neptune, they call it the Neptmoon. The ne- <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Funny. Yeah. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? If we, apparently, we now know about 3,000 exoplanets, yes. so just to uh, make it clear and cover my own confusion earlier. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about planets outside of our own solar system, so we know about 3,000 of them so yeah. far. We've actually uh, have, have data about. Mm. Um, uh, all of the planets, to my knowledge, with, with possibly with the exception of Mercury, which I, don't, I, I just don't know about this, have moons. Um, is that right in our own solar system? I think that is right, isn't it? I, d- I don't know of a moon to do with Mercury. There might, there might be yeah. tiny ones, but I didn't know. It's a very small planet yes. anyway. Yeah. Um, so you would think out of the, the, the eight or nine uh, planets that we have in our, in our solar system, uh, they all appear to have moons. Uh, uh, yeah, you would think that that's So it, it might follow yeah. if that's what we'd expect. I would expect it, yeah, but as I say, it's very hard to detect them. Yeah. Um, it, it, if they are, this one is a particularly big moon or a nept moon as we like to say um, is um, so it's, it's if it does exist 
then you can see why this one would be easier to detect. Probably when we get the uh, James Webb Space Telescope up there, which is a successor to Hubble, it'd be able to gather more light than Hubble. We'll be able to see more of these moons, and that's when we'll start to find the, more of these uh, exomoons around other planets, or okay. maybe yeah. the first one. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 FM, or you could be listening to us on bcfmradio.com anywhere in the world. And uh, if you are, it is great to have uh, your company. Uh, we're talking about science in the news, science behind the news. And um, next story up is a really nice one. Here's a clue about it. Have we won the cricket? <laughs> oh, I saw what you did there. See? So it's a nice. that's a very nice sound. So this is all about uh, a chirping cricket. And it turns out, good news for crickets, Hannah. Yeah, good news. Well, I mean, they're looking still not as good as we need them to be so uh, the European field cricket um, has has suffered quite a lot of uh, hits to its population so uh, sort of in the 1980s there's only about 100 individuals left in uh, in the UK all sort of centered in one one particular area so there's quite a lot of um, quite a lot of efforts at the moment to try and gather them up multiply the numbers and uh, make new populations around around um, the they, UK actually. Are they resistant? They get letters saying we want you to you know, <laughs> they, don't, they don't like moving. Gathering you together. <laughs> no I don't think so. It looks like um, what they do is you find their little burrows because these the European field crickets are f the, the larvae form they dig burrows when they hibernate and things like that so you can yeah. go to their go to their burrow and entice them out with a little um, doing what's called um, I think cricket tickling something like that so you go ah. to the edge of the burrow with a twig and just, just make a little bit of noise this and story is becoming out. more unlikely as it <laughs> goes, goes along yeah um so that's what they do to to collect the juveniles and then um yeah. sort of move them to somewhere else um because because apparently they were in incredibly common yeah they were all, there's, there's lots of references all through like literature about the 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 really lovely sound of crickets in the summer and like it, it kind of um being like really emotive or like really um, reminiscent of summer for a lot of people but we don't really hear it now I think there's three locations that have st steady populations of, of field crickets now in the UK I used to um, I, I'm, I can't remember the name of it but it was a particularly large cricket I used to uh, um, at one time have, have a spate of going camping in South Devon right on the coast and uh, in the night, you could hear the crickets. And, of course, uh, they were so loud, they'd draw you right to them. Mm. And um, one of my favourite things was to take a torch, follow the sound of the cricket, take a jar, you know, and catch a cricket. I mean, I would obviously let him go again. <laughs> good, uh, good. But, <laughs> but just to look at this, and they were huge. And apparently, um, they were known as uh, warp biters. Oh, really? Or that sort of thing. Years uh, and, and, uh, and it was said... Uh, that uh, in times past, if you had a wart and you hold the cricket to your wart, it would actually, its jaws were strong enough to bite it now. To bite it off? Yes. Or just, just to yes, bite it? Because, I mean, warts are quite tough. Yes, they, they are. But there you go. Goodness me. We did win the cricket, by the way. Oh, did, oh, did we? we? Yeah. Oh, well, nice, good, nice so. work. Well, at least you let yours go, Malcolm. It yes. says in this, <laughs> the... Um, the scientist um, in this article by the BBC is just saying that, that boys used to used to just probe the holes, get the crickets out, and then he uses the term destroy them, which I think is just uh, so. They, so I'm assuming that means that they just did squish them or something like that. Something very horrible for yeah. fun. I'm assuming. Oh, that's grim. Yeah, that is grim. I can't really think of any other reason why they would why they would want to do that. No. 
Well, I'm they're not, not they're not particularly pests. No. So far as I'm aware. So no. is, is, is it the case that there was a time in the past where we would wander across our countryside and hear lots and lots of crickets? Yeah, they used to, like on the edges of forests and things like that, they used to be really prominent, mm. um, like, like sing well into the night. Um, these, this sort of, it's a call to, to attract a mate, so that's why they do it. During the mating season, they'll be calling and sort of um, with lots of different um, frequencies and things like that, mm. chirping more shrilly when they think there might be a lady around to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, attract a mate, and um, that, so that's the reason that they do it, to attract a female. Yeah, like frogs. Yeah, like frogs. Yeah. Like frogs. Um, so but the sort of sound's made somewhere different, so they make it by rubbing uh, two parts of their back, so their back leg against a part of their wing case, whereas frogs just do it through their throat. Yeah. Frogs are amazing, anyway. <laughs> so in the last century, changes in land management and loss of natural habitat have led to a dramatic decline of the insect uh, across northern Europe. By the 1980s in the UK, field cricket numbers had dropped to fewer than 100 uh, individuals, uh, all found in one location in West Sussex. A decade later, in the 1990s, conservationists began catching young field crickets and moving them to new sites across Surrey, Sussex and Hampshire in a bid to save them. So, uh, good news anyway. It needs to be better. Yeah. But yeah. uh, always good news. Nice. Uh, we should say we're we're in a, a, a another studio. Our main studio is being renovated. Uh, all pictures of Andrew are being put up on the walls, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Oh dear, uh, draping the walls. Terrible news. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be great. Yes, it's going to be very good. And and uh, we um, uh, uh, we're in a we're in a, another uh, studio at the moment. Our little auxiliary studio, uh, the place where people prepare their packages and things like that. And um, so we're not. In entirely sure how to press all the buttons but we pressed all the ones that we can see and all the ones that are labelled and unfortunately Martin, Professor Martin Tranter of Bristol University who's been working in Greenland he's very very kindly phoned in to talk to us all about uh, what's happening in the Greenland ice sheet uh, but we can't hear him uh, because we can't put him through the desk anyway enough of the whinging and moaning and explaining let's just get on you know we have to just get on with life yeah. as, it, as the as the dice is rolled on. In front of us, we, yeah. we we just go with it. So, um, I don't know if either of you two have uh, been able to look at this story, uh, there were several people carrying it. BBC, uh, one of them, uh, sea levels fear. This is a story uh, I think from Martin Schuchman at the BBC, saying sea level fears as Greenland darkens. Sounds a bit odd. What does that mean? It turns out that uh, as you fly over Greenland. The first thing that you would notice these days is that the surface is darker. It looks dirty. Yeah, that's what he said. He said it, it struck him as, as sort of being a bit dirty and dark and, and like grey. Grey, yeah. I think, was the yeah. term uh, as well. So there's uh, a, a kind of bacteria and algae sorry, yes, growing on the ice. Yes, a bacterium, yeah. yeah. Um, as, it, as it grows, it, it darkens the surface or the, uh, the surfaces of, of the ice, which means that it absorbs more... Uh, more energy from the light and, and basically right. it causes the ice to heat up much quicker. That's right. The same, much quicker. Exactly. The same principle that, you know, if you wore dark clothes on a hot day, mm. you would be hotter. White things reflect. Uh, w- white snow reflects the sun away. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, if so that is one thing they said as well as that, like pure white snow would reflect about ninety percent of the radiation. Yeah. When it's dark, like the average algal bloom is about thirty-five percent is reflected, so it absorbs much more heat. And in some dark places. Even so so the, so the next question is why is there this algal bloom spread across Greenland? I mean, from from what I understand of it, mm-hmm. it's 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 spreading because of the rising temperatures so it's much it's much more forgiving uh environment now for the for the algae so it can just grow and flourish um and as it grows and flourishes it, it warms up and and melts the ice much quicker which is kind of uh, compounding really mm. and it wasn't actually even well this this type of melting this darkening mm. causing this this melting wasn't in the ipcc's uh, calculations of 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 how much no. the sea levels were going to rise no it's a new yeah. factor isn't it yeah. Yeah. i think yeah. they were aware that like the algal blooms were there but i don't it just wasn't wasn't really considered um for a long yeah. time so this is a, a new study called dark and bloom yeah. black and bloom black and bloom that's what it's called black and bloom <laughs> yes. that's right uh, uh, Martin Tranter, who, who we were going to uh, speak to, is leading uh, a project to study this effect. And uh, uh, there's a quote from him. He says, people are very worried about the possibility that the ice sheet might be melting faster and faster in the future. We suspect that in a warming climate, these dark algae will grow over larger and larger parts of the Greenland ice sheet. And it may well be that they will cause more melting and, and an acceleration of sea level rise and he says that our project his project is trying to understand just how much melting might occur of course the, there is an issue when um, a lot a lot of us don't find this easy to understand but um, glaciers of course uh, or bits of um, ice form in the sea icebergs and all of that kind of thing when they melt they don't add anything to sea level because they're already in the sea when bits of ice that f- come off of the land and that when, when when the water is running off of the land and it doesn't normally do so that does add to uh, to sea level so it's it's significant and important it sure is um and fortunately all politicians across the world accept this as a reality <laughs> that would be nice wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, are you just itching to make Trump? I am. You can't help yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to say, I always have to tell Andrew, look, you know, we can we can talk politics just as long as there's not an election on. Okay. But, uh, you know. I'll do my yeah, best. Of course. That's the, that's I d- the rule. I don't, it just, it's very hard when when we talk about the climate and because it's an incredibly important issue it's very hard to accept that there are people in charge of one of the most major um, polluters in the world the US one of the most major countries in the world who do not accept that the science of climate science you know and it, it I, I just simply cannot you know you were saying we just have to get on with it yeah, yeah I, I can't. I can't no, just no. get on with that. I can't accept it. Yes, we have to do something. I, I, about I wasn't it, suggesting that in, <laughs> in terms of climate change. Yeah, but uh, no, it's true. I mean, there's a there's a, the, the, there's a battle there. I, I, I think one of the things that st- and this will be my political comment that stuck in my craw was that Donald Trump thinks that the jury is out on climate change. Okay, well, what, what would he know about any? He knows very little about most things. So, yeah, uh, you know. Uh, what on earth does he know about climate science? And yeah. why, why would anyone take that seriously? I know. It's extraordinary, but there you go. There, there is one good thing about Donald Trump, though, is, which is that he tweets, and I think that's, that's such a good thing, because with, 
all the terrible things that might come from his presidency, at least you can go and look at his tweets and, and find some kind of humour in the total and utter idiocy that <laughs> is that man. <laughs> okay, so you said you've got it out. <laughs> you said it. Do you feel better now? No, feel worse. Your heart rate's going to go back to normal yeah. now for, for a little bit. There's a, another, I'm just going to jump on this story because our timing is all a little bit shot mm -hmm. uh, now because uh, uh, of that interview. But um, uh, one of the other stories that I picked up, I think this is also a BBC story. It says uh, there's a high risk of unprecedented winter downpours oh, yeah. uh, 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 from the Met Office. And normally it's the Daily Express that uh, predicts either extensive, uh, uh, the, the worst freeze ever known or, or whatever. Um, but uh, this is actually coming from a serious place, the, um, the Met Office. It says there is an increased risk of unprecedented winter downpours, such as those that caused extensive flooding in 2014. Uh, the study that they've made suggests there's now a one in three chance of monthly rainfall records being broken in England and Wales during the winter. And it's not just not just being broken as well. It could be broken by as much as thirty percent, which is like a huge increase, really. It really is. Yeah, it's uh, uh, apparently across the winter of 2013-14, a series of storms hit the UK, leading to extensive flooding in many parts, which we all remember. The amount of rain that fell in much of southern England and the Midlands was the heaviest in a hundred years. Cleaning up from the resulting floods took time and money. Uh, the bill for Thames Valley alone was a billion pounds. So. Can I just check if you were th if the climate was changing, would you expect to see continually that records were being broken? You would. Oh, yeah. And you'd see that yeah. year on year. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's almost exactly what's happening, isn't it? It is. That's quite an observation. <laughs> you made, you made there. Yeah. So, um, uh, although the, the Met Office says we're not attributing this directly to no, climate change, what we're saying is that if you take everything that's in the climate system today, then there is this risk. Climate change is already happening, and we've already got some that's folded into these figures so it's true there are all kinds of reasons why weather changes of course why uh, why the weather is different uh, why it's surprising why strange and odd weather patterns occur uh, but uh, climate change is all about the overall pattern quite uh, the weather is what's happening out there right now quite. climate is what happens over a long period yeah. of time and consistently breaking records would be something you would attribute as being climate change because yes. you'd be breaking the records consistently yeah record high temperatures we see month on month and this if this happens would be record rainfall mm -hmm. month on month uh, that would be what i would describe as climate change yeah well i i don't know what to, i'm with you okay with you let's 100%. see what donald trump thinks yes <laughs> well the jury is out there uh, so let's uh, go to another story then because um i think we should i think we should do something astronomical okay that might make me feel better yeah. thank you and um th there's a there's a, a a lovely story here about um we're all made of stars ah yes i like that one and um this is uh, uh the fact that this is, this is a story in The Guardian. Simulations reveal that up to half the material in our galaxy arrived from smaller galactic neighbours as a result of powerful supernova explosions. Did you see this story? Anna? I certainly did. It's, uh, 
yeah it's oh, yeah. an amazing one it really is i think it's it's just worth taking a moment just to sit back and think about that um distant well not distant but quite near in 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 terms of space in terms of the universe nearby neighbors but in terms of actual distance very far away galaxies um stars exploding in supernova explosions so powerfully that they send matter out into space across the intergalactic medium not just the interstellar medium but the intergalactic medium into our galaxy the milky way and that almost half up to half of the matter in our galaxy comes from matter from stars outside our milky way which if you take that uh, well you don't even need to take a step further we are matter in this galaxy so up to 50% of us is matter from this galaxy so up to 50% of us came from supernova explosions yeah. in galaxies outside our galaxy which if you just think about that as Carl Sagan would say those stars exploded so that billions of years later not so that and billions of years mm, later consequence of that we can look back that matter that exploded from that star now looks back and understands that that's where it came from. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. No, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, my understanding is that um, our sun can only uh, is, is hot enough to create all the elements up to iron. I think that's right. Okay. And of course, we're made of so much more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, iron's not that far up in the periodic table of, of, of elements. Mm -hmm. There are 92 natural elements that we, that we know of uh, that, that occur on Earth. Um, and uh, we can make a few more as well uh, in the laboratory, but uh, there are 92 elements, uh, the last one's uranium. And we use all of those elements, uh, and, and it would not be possible for us to exist were there not uh, a, a, um, supernovae explosions, yeah, bigger stars? Because of course our stars. star won't become a supernova. Won't, no. won't go supernova because no, too it's small. Too small. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in, it, supernovas obviously are bigger, probably hotter. Yeah. As a result of that. Yeah. But they are hotter. Uh, if they go supernova, then yeah. they are cooking up thing uh, elements. Yeah. Further along the periodic table yeah. than iron and sending them out into yeah. space. That's so where it all comes from. Yeah. So supernova means an enormous explosion. It's an, an enormous explosion. Yeah. Um, apparently, the next one we have our eye on is. Uh, I, now, I'd love to know how you say this. We popularly call it Betelgeuse. Yeah. Is it Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I interchange. You say Betelgeuse. I say Betelgeuse. That's what my dad says, Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse. Yeah. I, I interchange between the two. Yes. Um, I quite often no, I say Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse. <laughs> <laughs> see if it explodes in the middle <laughs> 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 yeah. And of course, that could go supernova tomorrow. It could. Or in a, uh, a few hundred years. It could have already gone when we look up at the night sky tonight. yes of course Ooh. because it takes uh, light yeah. a long time uh, to travel how far away there. is it do you know off the top of your head i don't know no, off the top okay. of my head sorry mm. that's fine um but yeah no I, it's the um the head of orion mm. and uh oh. if you look at it it's a if you look at it in the right night um with the seeing is good you can see just you can see it red you can see the big red star that is Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. And it's worth just knowing that at any moment it could go. But, you know, don't spend all night 
you can sleep. <laughs> Cause, cause Any minute now. It could be 100,000 years, maybe even longer before it does. Yeah. Um, we have uh, got time for one more story. And uh, this one, we referred to it earlier on in the show. Building blocks of alien cells found on Saturn's largest moon. This is, um, I've taken that from uh, the new scientist. And um, this is all about um, a particular, uh, I mean, the building blocks for life. Oh, just checking that uh, Andrew's on mic there because we're going to have to turn to him <laughs> because this is a something he knows plenty about or something about. Let's hope <laughs> something about. Pressure. Let's hope, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, sure. So, well, well, in a nutshell, what is this story, Andrew? Um, so Titan is, uh, yes, one of uh, Saturn's moons. And um, if you looked at Titan, um, as we have done from probes inside its uh, cloudy atmosphere, you would you would look from a distance. It looks m much like Earth. It has um, lakes, it has seas, it has mountains. But the liquid there isn't liquid water. It's methane, liquid methane, because Titan is very, very cold compared to us. Uh, and uh, they, it is a very good... Uh, candidate for life on uh, on outside of earth but most certainly not life as we know it no certainly not jim i mean sorry <laughs> malcolm and uh, it's uh, uh, but um what what i i might have to turn to hannah for this one a little bit because uh, um, i'll do my best as cells on earth have an awful lot of water in them yeah. And there isn't an awful lot of water. There's an awful lot of methane. Mm. And water wouldn't be able to be liquid on um, Titan because it's minus 149 degrees C. It's certainly too cold, yeah. So it would have to, the cells would have to be made of something else. Yeah, they'd have to. And also to interact with, with methane. So methane's um, a completely different sort of, I'm going to just say ball game, to water. So water's got like a, a more positive side and a more negative side. And when something's, um, when we have like, um, the kind of the yes. kind of hydro the yeah. lipids that we have that make up our cell wall are hydrophobic on one side and hydrophilic on the other side, so it ends up automatically folding around to protect its hydrophobic side from the water. Mm. Um, but because um, because it's methane, it's like a different a different chemical structure. Uh, I'm not okay. I'm not a chemist, but um, yeah. I'm assuming they've they've decided that the thing they would need for cells would be vinyl cyanide. Vin cyanide? Yeah, vinyl yeah. cyanide. That sounds like something that's full of life, doesn't it? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the, the, the membrane of the cell, I yeah. believe, would have to be made of something much thicker, much stronger than, than, than they are here on Earth. Yes. And we have found that in the atmosphere of Titan, there isn't enough vinyl cyanide to make 30 million cell membranes per cubic centimetre yeah. of liquid on the moon. There's a huge there. amount. Wow. So there's, a, there's a lot of what it would take to make life on Titan. Be very, very interesting to find out if it has done so. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. And uh, just as we're, we're uh, coming to the end of the show, of course, as usual, we're joined by the excellent John Ford, who's going to get Bristol home soon. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. That's okay. a good show today. Oh, well, Don't sound so surprised. Well, no, I'm not surprised. <laughs> it's just, you know, exomoons, crickets, stars, vinyl, cyanide, life on Titan. But the most interest part, interesting part of the show, and I wanted to hear more, was about stuffing magpies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, how oh, interesting. <laughs> you should do a whole show on that. <laughs> we should. We should. I don't know if it'd be great radio. No. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Bring it, you know, live. If vinyl cyanide is something that's <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, wh what did we miss this week, John? 
Um, oh, you've missed all sorts of uh, sorts of stuff. Um, 1969, Mariner 6 made uh, its closest approach to the planet Mars ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, in 1969. Yeah. That's a long um, time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. 1964. We've you were been buzzing about, it for a while. Yeah, you were talking yeah. about moons outside of the solar system. Earlier. Yeah. But uh, in 1964, the American space probe Ranger 7 transmitted the first ever close-up images of our moon. Starting the mapping of the moon. Uh, This day in 1964, which was ironic, because this day in 1971, Dave Scott became the first person to drive a vehicle on the moon. (laughs) This is part of the uh, Apollo 15. The same day. Yeah, 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 same day in history. Isn't that weird? Yeah, Yeah. Isn't that weird? Do you want one more? Do you remember the name Felix um, Baumgartner? Is he the one? Oh, yes. He's the guy that jumped from the highest. Well, he did something before then this day in 2003 he became the first man to cross the english channel using the same kind of suit oh really yeah 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 he, he jumped from a plane at uh, 30,000 feet and then landed in calais about 10 minutes later that's amazing yeah. can i everyone listening if you've got binoculars or a telescope go out tonight yeah. look at the moon it's good tonight the terminator on the moon which is the the period the place between light and dark is yep. in a good location it's nearly like a half moon mm. you'll see some amazing craters just do it it's much better than watching telly very good. All Excellent right, we'll advice do. there from Andrew. And look, well, that's it for us. Uh, we're taking a break for the summer, so we'll be back first Monday in September. Don't forget to stay tuned uh, to hear uh, John's show, Getting Bristol Home. It's been a real pleasure to have your company and, of course, uh, Andrew and Hannah. Uh, so have yourselves a very good evening. And science. <laughs>